Well, good morning, Mount Calvary Church. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 13 this morning. So if you could turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we are walking into another battle. Hopefully you are not battle-weary or not too fond of all the battles because this is where we are in the story of 1 Samuel. Uh, this week it's not going to be the Ammonites like we saw in chapter 11, but now we are going to meet a familiar foe. You, you know of the Philistines, and we'll be meeting them again as we continue our time in 1 Samuel. As we look at 1 Samuel 13, I want to break down the chapter with two headers or two ways of outlining it. The storm in those first seven verses and then closing with a couple more verses on the situation there with Israel. And then right in the middle, the heart of the passage, the solution. How do we solve the problem of the storm that's coming? And so let's, um, let's read it. I'll read it, and then we will join together in prayer. Verse 1, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. And he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come with the days within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly, for you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company tor turned toward Ophrah, the land of Shual. Another company 
turned toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, let the Hebrews make themselves swords, and spe- swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of the shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting, for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in any hand of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan and his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you for this story with King Saul and Samuel and the people. And God, I pray that as we consider this, God, I pray that you would encourage us today, that you would challenge us today, that you would equip us today, that we would leave this place this morning equipped to be faithful, passionate followers of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we recognize that we come into this room with all sorts of things that might keep us from hearing your word today, that we're stressed and we're tired and there are things that are coming up this week that we're not looking forward to or whatever it may be. We may be doing really well, but there are plenty of things, God, that might keep us from hearing your word. And so we ask that you would help us. Help me as I teach to teach clearly. Help us as we listen to hear according to your spirit. God, that we would leave changed followers of your son, Jesus Christ. God, encourage us today. It's in the name of your son we pray, amen. So two big ideas are two big headers of our text, the storm and the solution. We start out in chapter 13. It's really before the storm. Uh, We start out in chapter 13. Things are looking really, really good. Um, the, The man that they have wanted to be their king, he is finally in position. He's been anointed and announced and confirmed. They've had the ceremonies. And what's the first thing we see in chapter 13 that King Saul is finally doing? I mean, he is preparing to fight some battles. And you just gotta imagine that Israel is just loving this. I mean, this is why they wanted a king. And so he's gathering together the troops. And so in verse two, he gets the men together. He's mustering an army, 3,000 men, 2,000 with him in Geba, 1,000 with Jonathan in Gibeah. And he's feeling, he's feeling so good about this 3,000. The text tells us he sends the people home. Go home to your families and enjoy what you're going to see because God has given us a 3,000-man army. And in verse 3, this kind of this positive, trending story continues because Jonathan, his son, goes to battle. His 1,000 men, and they secure a victory. They go to Geba, to the Philistine garrison. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, I don't know how many weeks, maybe two or three in chapter 10, remember when Saul was being anointed and Samuel said to him, do what your hand finds you to do. And and it mentions, the text mentions the garrison of the Philistines that were were right there with him. And I suggested that, that he was supposed to go and to attack the Philistines that were there in Israel, but he didn't do it. Well, here now in chapter 13, whether or not that's what was supposed to happen in chapter 10, Jonathan has returned to Geba and he is doing what his father never did. He is 
taking, he is taking captive the, the Philistines in Geba. And then we see after this victory, Saul has what I call a proud father moment. We all have these, right, dads? Maybe not in the same way. Saul gets his trumpet out and he starts playing a tune. And he makes an announcement. And the announcement is, is interesting because who does he say gets the victory? Who, who, who did he say? Saul, which is kind of interesting, right? Dad is taking credit for the victory. Saul didn't secure the victory, but it was Jonathan. My, my daughter Caroline is hoping to play volleyball this year. And I told her as I was talking to her about this story, I told her that I'm going to have a proud father moment this year when you're on the court. And I'm bringing my trumpet. And she said, I don't, Dad, please don't do that. I said, then you're going to see my sign taking the credit for all that you're doing on the course. That my dad taught me everything sign. And she said, I'm not playing volleyball then this year. <laughs> but this is what's happening here. I mean, this is, things are trending upwards. Things are looking great. But here's the problem of the text. It turns all the trumpeting, all the announcing, all the gloating turns because what happens? The Philistines hear the announcement. And there's a lot that we can say about the Philistines, but for this morning, they are evil. They are a large group of people, and they want to take over all of Israel. And so when they hear the noise and they hear the announcement, this is not good. How does the text describe what it is to them when they get this news? It says, it has become a stench. It stinks. It is not a warm, warm chocolate day from Mars that we sometimes get here in E-Town, but the farmers are working today. You know what I'm talking about? You walk out and you're like, what's the smell today? Sometimes it's really great. Sometimes it's not great. Sometimes it's both together. But for the Philistines, th this is not good. They are not happy about what they're hearing about Israel and Jonathan winning. And really, from this point in the text, from verse 5, where we're trending upwards, that there's victory and there's this announcement from from verse 5 all the way to the end of the chapter, we are headed downhill. The storm is brewing. That The situation with the Philistines is daunting. They are gathering together to come and to take over Israel. And so what, what I want to spend a few minutes doing is kind of describing the storm that's presented here in the text about what, they, what is happening for Israel, that things are looking really, really bad. Okay, and I think this is the emphasis of the text. Verse 5, we just read about Saul mustering together his army of 3,000 men. Well, now the Philistines are mustering together their army in verse 5. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, more troops than can be counted, like sand on a seashore. The phrase that's always used to describe Israel and the promises to Abraham about what Israel will be like is now being used to describe the enemy that is marching to come and to capture and defeat Israel. In verse 6, we're told that the men of Israel were hard-pressed. I mean, they were stuck they were surrounded, and they were completely desperate. I mean, when I read the text, when you, when you were listening to what 
what this chapter is saying, it's, it's, I think it stands out, or at least it stood out to me, the different places that the people were hiding in the text. I mean, wasn't that kind of I don't, unique to you? I mean, five different places. It doesn't just say, the text doesn't just say that the Israelites were hiding. It gives you all these locations. They were in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns. In other words, People were so desperate, so desperate. They were going anywhere and everywhere that they could hide. They were even going into the graves. And so this is just to speak to how bad of a situation it is. The army is dwindling. Now, not 3,000 men, but now verse 15 tells us there's only 600 left. How are these 600 men feeling? How does the text describe kind of the morale of the army? Well, they're trembling. I mean, they are legitimately scared. And compare this to the Philistine army. This is when you start to really get overwhelmed. It's not just the situation of the Israelites. You you start to look at some of the words that were used to describe the Philistine army. You know, they scared. No, they're not scared. They're confident. They're organized. I have here highlighted the phrase, and the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. I mean, they have raiders, whatever that is. They're organized. They're ruthless, and they're ready, and Israel is running. There's no organization. There are no companies of Israelites. The Israelites are acting cowardly, and so this This is the situation we have here. It's not looking good. It is daunting. And then in verse 19, we get a a weapon inventory for the battle. And again, this uh, this isn't good. 19, we're told that in verse 19, we're told there's no blacksmiths. The Philistines strategically captured the blacksmiths so that there wouldn't be swords or spears or or weapons. And so what, what is Israel left to do? It's like, go get the shovel. Go get, go get the, the rake. Go get the tools from the shed because this is, this is all we have. And we, let's at least get the shovel sharpened. Well, even that was being overcharged to the point that they would have no money left. And so this is it. This is the wild situation that we have here in 1 Samuel 13. 3,000 or just a few men, 600 men versus Hundreds of thousands of people, chariots and horses and swords and spears versus a handrake and a spade and a shovel. The confidence and the organization of the Philistines versus the, the bumbling, hiding, trembling farmers of Israel. And so this is the situation. It is bleak. And the phrase that I wrote here that, that I kept coming back to was that all the odds are against Israel. All the odds are against Israel. Things look really, really bad. As I was thinking about what that must have been like, at the same time, I'm, I've been reading a book on World War II and on Normandy. And the whole, the whole story of Normandy and D-Day has just been so fascinating to me. And I never realized how much so for the allies that day in June, how the odds were so far against our allies. 
No idea how, how bad of a situation it was for the Allies. That when they left the English Channel, the 100 miles to get to the coast of France and to Normandy, we're not just talking about a few boats that had to kind of sneak into the coast. We're talking 6,000 boats. 6,000 boats in this, in this invasion. And that they're trying to sneak in, sneak into the coast of Normandy. Because this is how ruthless the Germans were. This is how ruthless they were and how the, the invasion was supposed to be on June the 5th. All the men are in their boats, hundreds of thousands of men in their, these large boats going across the channel through the middle of the night. But that because of the weather, it was so bad, the, wa the water so choppy, the fog so thick that Eisenhower said, we're going to wait another 24 hours. And that the men in these boats, that they're seasick, one of the vets that I was reading about, he said, I, we, didn't, we slept two hours. We're throwing up on each other. We're not sleeping. We're not eating. I mean, we are overwhelmed with anxiety until finally, on June 6th, they get the go-ahead. And so they got to get from their big boats down to their smaller boats. So they throw the rope over, and they're banging up against the boat. They fall into their boat. And the name of these boats that they used to get from, because the big boats couldn't come all the way in, to the shore, right? You're following me? And so they had smaller boats that they used from the big boats to get close enough to the shore. These boats were called Higgins boats. If you picture what a Higgins boat is, it's basically plywood. Plywood walls, plywood bottom, and then a gate that would open. And they would throw 30 men in this box. And depending on where, where these boats were anchored, how close they were to the coast, we're talking 12 miles to just a few miles to get to the coast where the men could kind of wade into shore. But as I was reading about these, what these vets were saying, they were saying how bad the seasickness was because you're in a box and waves are coming up over and you're nervous and you're anxious and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this moment. And then the gate opens up, opens. And one of the vets, it was interesting, said, the first bullet he saw, he said, I was, he said, I was so seasick, so seasick. He said, the first bullet I saw, my seasickness was gone. He said, it became secondary. He said, all of a sudden, that meant nothing to me because I was fully focused on the reality of what was happening. And so they get, the, the, the gate falls open and they wade into shore. And I was reading about Omaha, which was the deadliest of all the, the parts of the beaches and all the invasions. And they said, by the time the men got to shore, that they were so disheveled and confused from the coldness of the water and everything that was happening. Oftentimes, they didn't know where their captain was. They didn't know where they were on the beach. Their radios weren't working. Some of their weapons wouldn't have been working. That's even if they made it to the beach. They're now not fighting Mother Nature and seasickness and waves. What are they, they fighting? They're fighting the German army. And so then they get to the shore, assuming you get to the shore, Hitler created this, this line of defense called the Atlantic Wall, a 2,400 mile of just all these obstacles for the soldiers to prevent them from, from marching into Normandy. Millions, I read millions of landmines, barbed wire and obstacles, so that if you got through all of that, 
all the obstacles, all the barbed wire, all the people shooting at you, all, all the landmines. Finally, you got to, and you, I'll show you, here's the picture, the famous picture from D-Day. I mean, this is one of the boats. I mean, can, can you imagine the feeling of, of the ramp going down, and there you are off, and you can see in the distance, you can kind of see the, the cliff in the distance. If you made it through shore, through all those obstacles, you, you were met in Omaha, and you were met with the 100-foot cliff, 100-foot cliff. And what the Germans did was they built this cement bunker with a little slit where the people with guns that could reach the beaches and that the army rangers were tasked to get to that, to get to that cliff, to climb up that 100-foot cliff and dismantle the men that were in that bunker. You talk about the odds being against you. I mean, what do you, what do, you do in that moment? For Israel, what do you do in that moment? You are 600 men strong. They are organized, and they are coming at you from all around you. What do you, what do, you do on this day that you're in this, you're in this Higgins boat? How do you handle that? You know, and I was thinking, you know, we, we, it, we may not relate to this part of the, the sermon, right? We're, we're not in a world war. And we may not even relate to what's going on in Israel. They are in a battle because we're not in a battle. And so let me just kind of connect the dots for you and give you a personal situation of how we can see ourselves in this text how we can understand just personally how it feels to be desperate and to feel that the odds are against us. Just a personal uh, a, a story. Um, you've heard me share about my friend Andy. You remember Andy from Easter morning? I mean, it was the highlight of Easter. Shake your head, hopefully. He got baptized, shared his testimony. Um, it was a great moment for Andy. He came to Christ years ago here at Mount Calvary, he came out of addiction and challenges and struggles. And on Easter, this last Easter, he shared his testimony and he was baptized. And, and for us, as we kind of compare Andy's story to the text, it was that first five verses. Things were on the up and up. Andy, I mean, going into Easter, he was on cloud nine. But after Easter, um, Andy really struggled. Started to get overwhelmed with discouragement and bills to pay and challenges, personal challenges. A couple of weeks ago on Monday, Andy called me. He had chipped his tooth at work. Chipped his tooth. And for someone in, someone in Andy's shoes, chipping a tooth, the bill, the time off work, getting there, I mean, it is no small task. And so we drove into Lancaster. We figured it all out. We figured out how to pay this bill, took the time off of work. I mean, but it was, again, it's an overwhelming thing in Andy's situation. He went back on Tuesday to get it all fixed. He's coming back to, to E-Town on Tuesday afternoon. And he calls me. He says, my car broke down, Matt. My, my, it overheated. I'm on the side of the road. I'm like, what are you doing? I was picking up my tooth. I'm like, Andy, this, what a week this has been. So I get, we get Andy. We take a look at his car, and it's done. The car is done. I mean, it is completely overheated. The engine is not. It's not fixable. We took it to shops. We got opinions, and... and now Andy is out a car. You talk about overwhelming. Like what, what do you say in Andy, what do you say to Andy in this moment? And we all have weeks like this. Just where is this all coming from? And then you consider Andy's backstory on top of just a bad week. You put Andy's backstory 
I mean, he doesn't have family. He doesn't have family. He was abandoned as a baby in South Korea. Abandoned. He left, left on the side of the road. And he was adopted as a toddler by a family from New York City or from New York. Turned out not to be a great situation. They abandoned him for a second time in his life when he was just a little bit older. I think he was six. Put into foster care. From six to 18, he traveled all across the United States from foster home to foster home to foster home. I mean, dozens of foster homes. Turned 18, and what does he do? He gets on a bus, and he goes to North Carolina. No money, no bags, no clothes, nothing, nothing. He has nothing left. And then 18, he walks into a homeless shelter, and he's met with drugs and problems and challenges, things that he never would have imagined. And then we meet Andy. Years down the road, we meet Andy here in E-Town, struggling, searching for help. And we realize as we try to help Andy, he, he, doesn't have, he doesn't have a birth certificate. And we try to help him find a birth certificate, but we find out that his adopted family never finished his citizenship papers. That he was adopted, he was adopted as a baby, but he was, he was not a citizen because his adopted family didn't fill out the papers. And so now he's got all this stacked upon him. No birth certificate, no, no, he can't get a license, he can't get an ID, he's got bills and debts and past and mistakes, and it's like, and here we are on the side of the road, right on the highway, 283. What, what do we say to Andy? Like, how do you handle when all the odds are against you? What do you say, and what do you do? And, and that's that's a big example, and we may not even relate to Andy, but I think we at least can understand with this feeling of, man, it is storming, and I am overwhelmed, and there is just things that just, it just won't stop. So what do we do? Because that's Saul's situation. That is where they are. What does Saul do in light of the circumstances? Verse 8, he waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? You know, you start to look at what Saul does in the midst of the overwhelming situation. It, I think it's Fair to say that it's hard not to be somewhat sympathetic for Saul, right? Like you first read this, you're like, was it that bad of a thing to do? I mean, he waited the seven days. He waited seven days, and it wasn't like, I mean, he had a, at least a decent idea. I want to bring God into this and offer a sacrifice, but I think it's an important question. What did Saul do wrong? What did Saul do wrong? And I think we have to go back to chapter 10 to really see what Saul messed up on. And so if you go back, I'll put it on the screen. Samuel gave Saul very clear instructions. Okay, here's what he says in verse 7. When he was being anointed. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. And then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice, peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you, 
and show you what you shall do. So here's what Samuel's doing. He's giving him a call to action and a call to wait. The call to action is that first phrase in verse 7. He's, gonna, he's saying, here's what's coming ahead of you, Saul. There's going to be a time for you to do what your hands are called to do. There's going to be a time to fight. And we saw that in chapter 11 with the Ammonites. Saul obeyed the Lord. He fought the Ammonites. Remember the ox and the Tupperware and sending them all to the people and gathering together, taking over? Yeah, you remember that? There was a time for action in chapter 11. But then Saul, Samuel also tells Saul, I'm going to come and meet you. Wait for me in Gilgal. There's also a time to wait. And when I come to you in Gilgal, I'm going to give you the instructions from God's, I'm going to give you God's word on what you are supposed to do next. In other words, there was a time for Saul to wait. And so what was the problem here? Saul missed a really important phrase from chapter 10. He wasn't supposed to just wait seven days. That's what, that's what Samuel told him, seven days. But what was the little phrase that, that Saul completely ignored in the heat of the moment? He was told, seven days until I come to you. It's not the sun comes up on the seventh day. Well, now you got to figure it out for yourself. It was seven days until I come to you. Well, the problem was Saul didn't wait long enough. He didn't listen. He didn't wait the full amount of time. And at that point, I mean, he, he, he has all the reason to kind of figure this out for himself. I mean, verse 7 or verse 8 and, chapter, and verse 11 of back to our chapter. I mean, he just lists all the excuses. Well, you weren't here on the seven days, and then my army was leaving, and then I saw the Philistines mustering together, and then I saw our weapons. Like All the reasons for, for Saul to say, it's time for me to pick up and to fight and to, to do this on my own. And what, is, what does Samuel say to him in verse 11? It just pops off the page. He asks him the question, what have you done? I mean, what a piercing question. What have you done? The same question that God asked Eve in the garden. What have you done, Eve? The question that he asked Cain after killing his brother. What have you done? What, what are you doing? And, and Saul responds by saying, here's all the reasons that I did this, but what is, how does Samuel describe the person that Saul has become? He says, you have acted foolishly. Foolishly. And I think that's the key word. Foolish doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you're an atheist or you're an agnostic. In Psalm 14:1, it says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. In his heart. The fool doesn't, it's not his mind he's saying there's no God. He's saying in his heart, saying, You don't want God. It means you live as if God doesn't exist. And this is certainly what Saul is doing. He is being foolish. He is taking matters into his own hands. God is not here, so now I'm going to live and act in such a way that as if God doesn't exist, I'm going to solve my own problems. I'm going to put myself on the throne. I'm going to figure this out for myself. So he didn't wait long enough. He didn't listen. He didn't understand, and then he took it into his own hands, and he played the part of God, and this was 
foolish. And so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for Andy and for you and for me when we are feeling overwhelmed, when the storm is coming and it is a big storm and it is over us? What is the call for us according to this chapter and the, and the teachings of the New Testament and what we have in Jesus? The call is that we are called to wait, to wait. And it may feel like you're on day seven. You're like, it's day seven. It's time to go. No, we continue to wait. We continue to trust. That's what this is. It's trust. That's the picture of waiting, of saying, I will trust in my God and in Jesus Christ. And so what do we do? We wait. We hold on. I mean, we, we cling to that. That when it is overwhelming, there is a time to wait. There's also a time for action, right? And that's next week. There's, there's, it is a bit more hands-on, but there's also a time for waiting and trusting and letting God figure it out and, and direct you and lead you and guide you. And it takes wisdom and discernment. When do we wait? And when do we fight? And when do we move to action? But here the call is wait. So here are some New Testament scripture on waiting. James 5, 7 through 9. Be patient, brothers, to the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it till it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And we wait for Jesus. He's come, he came once and he went to the cross and he is coming again and he is coming again to rescue us. And so we establish our hearts knowing that that's gonna happen. I like that picture. We take our hearts and we, we, we connect it to the truth that he is coming again and we're not to grumble against each other. Right? That's what Saul's doing. He's working and figuring out and, and taking matters into his own hands. And, and what we're told here in James is, don't grumble. Attach yourself, your hearts, to the fact that Christ is coming again. Hebrews 9, 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That in Christ, our sin has been dealt with. And yes, we face storms, but we attach ourselves waiting for Jesus who is coming again to rescue us. Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge, yourse never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. I mean, that's a great passage of saying, hey, be patient. Let God avenge for you. You don't avenge for yourselves. He's going to come back. He's coming back as the judge on the horse, and he's going to take care of things. Be patient and just wait for him. I like the Hebrew word for, for waiting. You know how it is hard to wait. It's hard to wait. I'm not a good, I'm not good at waiting, but when you think of what the Hebrew word is, I think it helps, helps me and it hopefully helps you. As we, as we seek to be better at waiting for God in the midst of the storm. The Hebrew word is the word shakah. Okay, that's the word that's used of what Saul doesn't do in 1 Samuel 13. 
And the word is a picture in the Hebrew that means to bind yourself to something stronger. Waiting is, it, the, the picture is binding yourself as a string binds itself to something stronger. That, that we recognize that Andy, that you, that me, that we're, we're a string, just a little string. And that when the storm comes, and the fire comes, and the war comes, and the challenges comes, and the overwhelming comes. Like, this is who we are. This is what we are. This is what we're left to. And that's not a good place. That is overwhelming to be. But that when we think of the word, we think of the word waiting in the Hebrew, that, that we are to take our little string, and we are to weave ourselves around something much stronger, the chains of the word of God, the chains of the character of God, the rope of the people of God, the community of God. And so what does it mean to wait? How can we be really good at waiting? Is that we do a really good job of wrapping ourselves around the character of God, the, the word of God, and the people of God. That, the, the picture that I had as I was thinking about this is, is put, putting on noise-canceling headphones and just reminding ourselves, immersing ourselves with the, the true and affirming and encouraging word of God. How do we wait when everything is falling apart? We tell ourselves over and over again the word of God. Psalm 33, 11, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purpose of his heart through all generations. Isaiah 41, 10, headphones on. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That we recognize we are not good at waiting. We're not good at surviving these storms. But we cling to, wrap ourselves around the word of God, the character of God, and the people of God. And that for Andy, he's not alone. Mount Calvary Church is Andy's family. He's got a support system here. He's got help. He's got people praying for him, watching out for him, providing for him. And then he's got God's word and he's reading God's word. And so though the, the road is tough for Andy, listen, Andy is a fighter and he's not giving up and he is clinging to God. And that, that is the picture of waiting. So two passages as we close, and my hope is to encourage you, just to encourage you. Wherever you are, whatever you face, it is, it is good to wait for God. Lamentations 3, 22 through 26. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The Lord is good to those who wait, meaning it is good to recognize that you are a string and all your hope and all your help come from no one else but God. And it is good to run to him in those moments. And then lastly, Psalm 130. I'm going to read Psalm 130. We're going to pray Psalm 130. And then we're going to sing Psalm 130. 
says this, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, And with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray together. Father, we do cry out to you. Out of the depths, we cry to you. Hear our voices. Hear our cry of help. Lord, who should mark our iniquities? Who would would stand, God, if you marked our iniquities? No one. We recognize that in Jesus Christ that there is forgiveness, yet we wait for you, and we watch for you, and we hope in you. And so, God, I pray that you would help us as we wait. Whatever that looks like for everyone here, whether it's a season of storms or it's not, God, that you would prepare us to wait well, clinging, wrapping ourselves around your word, your character, and your people that we would wait and not solve things ourselves, God, not turn to sinful fixes or artificial ways of dealing with situations or, or whatever we turn to, God, but that we would patiently wait and trust you and that you would give us discernment when to wait and when to get up and to do something. So God, now we sing this psalm. Help us as we learn to wait. In the name of your son, we pray, amen.